communion and so on and so forth. Regular worship, you know, the regular way you worship. Now, if I would ask you another question and say, why? Why regular worship? The answer may come back in several ways. Well, what do you mean, why regular worship? I mean, regular worship because God wants you to have regular worship. Regular worship because it's good for you. Regular worship because we have a command to do regular worship. We have an example in the New Testament to do regular worship. That's, that's why. Now, I'm not saying here that regular worship isn't about what we do here on Sundays and Wednesdays, and which has been beautifully done this morning, thanks to Edsel and John and others leading us, directing our minds. And I won't dispute the fact that the Bible demonstrates and instructs us to practice public worship on a regular basis. What I do want to show you this morning is that the Bible speaks of worship in grander terms than just mandating a regular worship period and demanding that we stick to it. There's more to it than just that. The place and the time and the manner of worship are merely servants of a great and wonderful reality we sometimes miss because we are locked into a habit regulated by time and tradition. And so as I said this morning, I'd like for us to step back from the trees, so to speak, and get a view of the magnificent forest which we refer to as worship. Now, saying that the reason we should worship God regularly is because we have to, or saying that we should worship God regularly because it's good for us, or because we have an example of how to do it, misses the point altogether. It's like saying that the reason you married your spouse is because your parents are married. You've got an example. Or you saw a wedding one time and thought it was good. Or you read about weddings in a magazine. I want one of them. In the book of Hebrews, which I will ask those of you who have brought your Bibles, please open to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, the author of this particular epistle puts forth two prime reasons for our worship to God. And then he elaborates with four actions that stem from these two reasons, four actions that define what our worship is to be about. We're so into the how that we forget the about part. And no wisecracks about the way I say about. <laughs> All right, two reasons. Hopefully you're at Hebrews chapter 10. Two reasons. Go down to verse 19, please. Two reasons to worship. Reason number one, confidence. That's why we worship. Confidence. Verse 19, he says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Now, you wouldn't think that confidence would be one of the major reasons why a person would worship God regularly. I mean, if you stop people at the door and, and you ask them and say, why are you here today? I don't think a lot of people will say, because I'm confident. I think a lot of people say, well, it's, it's 9 o'clock Sunday, where else am I going to be? Or my parents dragged me here, or whatever. 
Let me explain it to you this way, about confidence and worship. Let's say that there is a certain man, and he is the president of a company, a big company, thousand employees. And people need an appointment to see this man, and, and his employees are polite, and they show respect. And his suppliers return his calls, and, and no one would like to be called into his office unless it was for good news. And if you're in his office of the big boss, you're a little nervous, even if it is good news. You're happy when it's over. You want to get out of there. Now, I want you to think of this same man going home to his family. And when he's walking up the walkway to his house, his little boy ambushes him with his new water gun and sprays him. And when he walks into the house, his little girl runs and jumps into his arms and hugs and kisses him. What's the difference here in these two scenarios? The same man... He's still the boss. He's still the president. Well, the difference is that the kids have confidence because the relationship with this man that they have is different. He is the father. He's not just the boss. And because he is their father, because he has shown his love, they have the confidence to approach him at will and without fear of any kind. Now, they don't do it because they have to. They don't run up to dad and jump in his arms because they saw it in a book. They do it because they have confidence based on his love. Now, in verse 19 and 20, the writer of Hebrews explains that Christians can now approach God with confidence because of what Jesus Christ has done. Confidence is why we approach. And Jesus' sacrifice is why we have this confidence. You see, before, before Christ, the people could only worship from afar. Now, it wasn't that they, they didn't want to worship, but rather they were kept at a distance on purpose. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see the intricate system of sacrifice and ceremony and the multi-layered system of priests and Levites guarding the approach to the place of worship. And the warnings from God himself was stay back. Don't touch. A continual reminder of your unworthiness and your sin and that there was a distance between you and God. And that was reinforced over and over and over again by the religious system that was in place. But now the author explains that uh, in the first ten chapters of Hebrews and summarizes here in these two verses, now we have confidence to approach God not simply in a building designed for worship, but at the very presence of His being. And why? Because Jesus Christ with His death on the cross, with the offering of His perfect life, has removed the sins that barred our entry into the very presence of God. And so in the Old Testament, the priests entered the Holy of Holies, which represented, only represented, the presence of God. And they offered the blood of a dead animal as a ritual sacrifice. Now this didn't give worshipers any confidence. They were not emboldened, not with ten sacrifices, not with a thousand, not with a million sacrifices were they emboldened anymore. 
No, the sacrifices simply reminded them of their sinfulness and of the overriding presence of death in their lives. And so the Hebrew writer says that Jesus goes before God himself, not just the place that represents God, but the actual place where God is. And he offers a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, not a dead animal, a life, a perfect life. He offers himself. And the result is different. The worshiper now has a way to enter in before God without fear, without disgrace, without shame, without hesitation, confidence. And so because of what Jesus has accomplished, his disciples, you and I, we have confidence to come before God whenever we please. I repeat that. We have confidence to come before God whenever we please. Not whenever He pleases, whenever we please. We are not limited by sin. We are not limited by ritual. We are not limited by culture. We are not limited by physical ability. We are not limited by position in society. With none of these things in the way, there is great confidence to come forward and be and stand in the presence of the living God. That's one of the reasons why we worship. Confidence. A second reason why we worship is given to us in the next verse, and that is connection. We have confidence and we have a connection. Verse 21, let me read that. He says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, I want you to remember that it wasn't because the Jews did not want to worship. It's not they didn't want to worship God, but they were limited in their worship. No matter what they wanted to do, they were limited. Their only link with God were the priests. The priests were the intermediaries between God and the people. The priests were the ones that offered the sacrifices that expressed repentance or joy. You, you were joyful, you had to go offer a sacrifice through the priest. You were thankful for something good in your life, you had to go through a whole system and offer another sacrifice, a different animal or some good, some, some, some uh, produce from the land to show your thankfulness. But always through the priest. Only they were allowed to enter the place where God was. Now there was a problem with this. The problem with priests was that regardless of their high position and priestly garments, underneath those elaborate robes, they were just like everybody else. Sinners condemned to die. They could represent the people, but they couldn't improve the people. And that was an important distinction. They couldn't improve the people, and no matter what they did, they could not by themselves bring the people closer to God. They simply perpetuated a system from generation to generation to generation in the hope that one day, one day, the Messiah would come. And so the Hebrew writer says that Jesus, he is the connection that people now have that makes all the difference. The ordinary priests understood the people but could do nothing for them because they shared in their sins. Jesus, however, as the great priest, 
could also sympathize with human weakness because he was human, but because he never sinned, he could do much, much more on behalf of the people that he serves. He could remove the guilt and the condemnation upon the people because of sin. And he could usher them into the very throne room of God. I remember a couple of years ago, well, many, many years ago, I had a, I had a, a, an assignment to do in college. It was on a communications course I was doing. And I had to talk about, um, uh, writing, uh, newspaper columns, how to, how to become syndicated. And through a person that I knew, I, I got to meet, uh, the lady who does the Heloise hints from Heloise column and, uh, and he arranged the meeting and I wanted to interview her to find out, get some, you know, tips about syndication. And so I went to her house in San Antonio and I, uh, you know, I went up to the door, knocked and her person, her assistant was there. And I remember going in and talking and making sure I was the right person. And then he ushered me into the room of the great lady. And then she made her entrance, and I got to interview her. He ushered me in. I couldn't just knock on the door and say, Hey, Heloise, you're home. What's happening? I'm here. You know, that didn't happen. I had her person, her assistant, usher me into the room. Well, on a much higher and grander and more eloquent and beautiful level, Jesus Christ ushers us into the room of the Father. Christians have a heavenly connection in Jesus Christ that enables them to go where no man has gone before. And that is in the very throne room of the Father. That's why we worship. We have confidence and we have a connection. Now I suppose that my concern with our concept of regular worship you know, this Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday thing, is that it is too narrow, and because of this, it becomes confining spiritually. We become bored with the routine, and we blame God for it, when in reality, we're the ones that have created this stifling model, not God. Or perhaps we begin to tinker with the worship, quote, formula, and maybe we try to jazz it up, hoping to make it more relevant, more exciting. And in the end, the only thing we end up doing is compromising God's Word. The writer of Hebrews lays out the primary reasons for our desire to come to God. As I said, confidence that He will receive us and a connection that brings us to Him. Those are the, those are the motivating factors for worship. But then he goes on to explain a broader concept of the worship produced by this type of heavenly motivation. A concept that goes beyond the boundaries of our weekly routine of public gatherings. His concept of regular worship includes four other elements. You know, we always talk about the elements of worship, you know, singing, praying, communion, giving, preaching, you know, those type of things. Listen to the elements of worship that the Hebrew writer talks about. First element he talks about is getting close to God. Verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Now you need to read this sentence actually in reverse to get the full meaning. So if we did it in reverse, here's what it would break down to. First of all, he says, the conscience is cleansed of guilt and fear when the body experiences baptism. Peter the Apostle said it this way. He said, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Then, he says, the mind is sure that what is happening is happening because of faith in Christ and what Christ did and no other reason. And then he says, the heart is sincere, literally a true heart, no ulterior motives, just a sincere desire for worship. And then he says, the whole being comes close to God as a result of what Jesus has done. Not what coming to the place where God is worshipped, but a coming near to the God who is worshipped in this place. And that's the point we miss. We come to the place where God is, but we're not looking for God in this place. What good is being in the house of worship if one doesn't actually come near to the one who is worshipped in the house of worship? And so regular worship includes a coming into the presence of God, not regulated by time or place, but rather by distance. It's not how far you live from the church building that counts, it's how far you are from God that counts. Regular worship, according to the Hebrew writer, means that one comes nearer to God. And one comes nearer to God by having faith sincerity, and a clear conscience through Christ and Christ alone. If you have that, it doesn't matter how far you live from the building, brothers and sisters. And so regular worship includes a drawing near to God. Regular worship also includes, according to the writer, perseverance. Perseverance. Verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You wouldn't think that another element of regular worship is perseverance. You know, a lot of elderly Christians who are confined to hospitals and nursing homes, when I go visit them, they often apologize to me for their inability to be present in the building for public worship. Their attitude, of course, is commendable, but a result of the narrow definition of regular worship that we have labored under for so long. The Hebrew writer includes the perseverance of the saints in the faith as an aspect of regular worship. We don't hang on to our faith. We continue to confess our faith regardless of the circumstances. This is regular worship. The writer says that proclaiming the reasons for our confidence and the identity of our connection, despite the pressure to the contrary, this too is part of worship. This too is part of a drawing near to God. It's amazing that the same elderly saints who are confined because of illness or age will feel badly about not being in the building for services. But they boldly confess their abiding faith in Jesus despite their difficult circumstances. They've got everything in the world wrong with them physically, and yet they're happy to confess Christ where they are. That's worship! They need to understand that this perseverance is as sweet an aroma of worship as their presence in the pew on Sunday morning. And so regular worship 
in a broader sense, is a drawing near to God, is a perseverance in the faith. And thirdly, it is, a, it is providing a godly example. Verse 24, he says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Regular worship includes providing a good example. You know, this short verse right here encompasses the whole of Christian conduct, love and service. Love identifies whose you are to other people. Because Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John chapter 13, verse 35. So there is love and there is service, good deeds. Good deeds identifies and honors the God you serve. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light shine before men. And Paul the Apostle reinforces love and service as a key ingredient of regular worship in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, listen now, which is your spiritual service of worship. In Romans 12, 1, does he talk about Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday? Does he talk about singing? Does he talk about any of those things? No. He talks about offering yourself on a daily basis to God. And this, he says, this is worship. And so for the Christian, every act of love and every act of service is considered worship to God. Not the only worship, don't get me wrong but worship nevertheless. And this is as it should be because God deserves no less than our total lives in worship to Him. You know, it's a liberating thought that our daily lives contain the same opportunities for acceptable worship as the public worship we offer here today. You feel good when you leave here because you've been here? You ought to feel good every single day because of the things I'm talking about. And then finally, regular worship a drawing near to God, a perseverance in the faith, a demonstration of love and service, and then fourthly, regular worship includes assembling with the saints. Verse 25, he says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The let us is understood here. Now, the previous exhortations were positive in nature, and this one is said in a negative way. You know, he says, do this, do this, do this, and then he says, don't do this. Don't forget to do this. Let us not, he says, forsake the assembly. Now, our mistake at times is that we read only this verse, and we reduce worship to only this activity. Gathering together as a group to sing, take communion, teach the word, share fellowship, pray, and share our resources. And we, and we water down, no, I shouldn't say that. We, we narrow down the definition of worship just to this. And my point is that assembling together is worship, but it's not the only worship. Yes, we must do this regularly, and yes, we must encourage one another to be faithful to do this, and yes, we must assemble as a way to prepare for the coming of the day of judgment, yes. However, doing only this 
without an effort to draw closer to God as an individual, without the effort to persevere in hope, without the practice of brotherly love and service on a daily basis, without these other things, our regular worship on Sunday will be diminished in its effectiveness and meaning every time we gather together. You see, what makes the assembling of ourselves together for worship meaningful and satisfying is not the fact that we do it often. How did we ever get to that kind of reasoning? Hey, I like church service because I come all the time. And you will like church service if you like, if you start coming all the time. If you start coming every Sunday and Wednesday all the time and never miss, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start to like it. What? Is worship like spinach? Or liver or something? I don't know about you, but they can't hide liver no way for me. You're not going to get me to eat it. I'll eat the fried onions and no way will I touch that. No, brothers and sisters, what makes church service satisfying and meaningful and desirable is the fact that Christians who are drawing near to God each day in prayer and private praise and Bible reading, those who have paid a price for clinging to the hope that they have in Christ, brethren who have an active love and service life in the Lord, Christians who are regularly worshiping God in these ways are happy and eager to be in the company of fellow disciples who also regularly worship the Lord in these ways. You know, birds of a feather like to flock together. Well, Christians who worship regularly like to assemble regularly. For these regular worshipers, the assembly is yet one more way, not the only way, but one more way that they can do what they love to do, and that is worship God. They don't like it because they do it often. They don't like it because they don't have anything else to do. They don't do it because they read it in the Bible or the apostles gave an example, although that is true. That's not the motivation. They assemble for worship because that's what their lives are about. Worship to God. And it's simply one way that can uh, that they can share this joy with other people. So, what have I told you this morning? Told you a couple of things. Let me just summarize it. First of all, I've told you that the assembly is one of several ways to express worship to the Lord. Secondly, I've told you that the motivation for worship is the confidence we have to draw near to God and the connection we have to actually come into His presence. Not rules about having to be in a certain place at a certain time. That's not motive. I don't know about you, but that's not motivation for me. And I work here. I've also told you that regular worship is not just a part of a Christian's life. It is his or her entire life. And I've told you that unless you worship God regularly every day, church services will not give you much joy or satisfaction. You don't get a zest out of Sunday worship. You don't get a, a lift out of regular worship. You ought to be looking at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday instead of examining what happens on Sunday. Now I will tell you one last thing. And here it is. If you don't worship God regularly while you are here on earth, 
you will be eternally denied that privilege in heaven. That's, that's hard, isn't it? You see, God will not accept your worship of Him face to face in heaven unless you worship Him by faith while you are here on earth. Now some think that they can give their heart and their souls to this world and its activities with just a token hour or two invested in religious ceremonies to satisfy God's desire for our love. Well, brethren, that's not worship, that's gambling. We call that hedging your bet. Well, I'll give a couple hours here just in case this religion business is true. But God desires that we love him with our whole heart and our whole mind and with our whole soul. Has that changed somehow? The Hebrew writer describes our journey to that point in terms of regular worship in its many forms. And so I encourage all those who have had the habit of assembling with the saints to you, I, I encourage you to make sure that you also cultivate the habit of drawing near to God and the habit of persevering in your faith and the habit of love and good deeds so that your worship will be complete and acceptable to God and satisfying for you. And for those who are not in the habit of regular assembly or have gotten out of the habit of assembling with the saints, please, 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 Realize that you have fallen further away from God than you even realize. Jesus Christ opens the way to be with God forever. And he invites all those who believe in him to come into the very presence of God. If you hear that call this morning, then I encourage you to respond to it now. As we stand and as we sing our song of encouragement. Song of encouragement. Song of encouragement. Song of encouragement.